everybody. I'm Michael, and welcome to the fifth episode. Yes, fifth episode of the Bibliophile Labyrinth Adventures podcast. I'm just doing a short introduction because this week we are joined with a new contributor. Uh, first, I'd like to thank Michael from Germany for having provided two wonderful and informative and entertaining episodes. And I'm looking forward to some more that he's got planned. And But today we get joined by somebody I've known quite a while that I met through my interest in Valiant Comics. He and my friend Paul started the Valiant Central podcast a long time ago. And through his efforts, it that podcast grew into multiple podcasts by many, many people that were in the same fandom of Valiant Comics to cover things from DC Comics to just, just general nerdy things in general. Um, my cousin Dave and I do a, a podcast on his network called 2BT, and another friend has a podcast called Retro Reprise where he goes back and looks at old video games and breaks them down and as great detail and covers things like music and all. Other podcasts you can find on the Nerdy Legion Network are on Aftershock Comics. What did you watch last week where the hosts talk about uh, TV shows and movies they've watched? Uh, there's one done by a couple of buddies named Jay and Dennis called Best of the Rest, where they cover alternative and indie comics and just have a good conversation all in all. Uh, I love all those shows. And there's more. Uh, there's more. There's, there's always something new showing up on that network. And so it's worth checking out if you're interested in that kind of thing. So give them a look. But this is the Bibliophile Labyrinth Adventures podcast. I'm still kind of regretting the choice of that name. So maybe it's not too late for me to change it. Maybe I should just change it to something like Reading Adventures. That's kind of what my instinct at verse was when I decided to do this on a whim. And now it's grown and I, we're rolling along. I'm really enjoying it. I'm hoping more people will be interested in contributing uh, episodes on books or genres or writers or whatever that they, they're interested in and passionate about. And that brings me to Martin's contribution today. He asked me if I'd be interested in letting him put an episode out on an ancient text called the Upanishad. And yeah, of course, I, I'm like super excited. Uh, I've listened to it. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's exactly what I was hoping to get. I knew Martin wouldn't let me down because he has great interest in a variety of things. Very knowledgeable, and he's really good at summarizing what it is that makes whatever it is he's interested in worthwhile. And this is a very special episode. I absolutely loved it, and I'm hoping to get more from him in the near future. He might be doing some on some other other interesting books and texts. And, uh, and like I said, the door's open for lots of contributions from all over the place about just about virtually any type of book or book-related theme. So please, email me at 143podcasts at gmail.com or find Bibliophile Labyrinth Adventures on Twitter. Send a tweet or just a direct message there. I'll be happy to put you on the show, sharing whatever it is you you're enjoy. So without further ado, I'm not going to get into a description of what Mark's talking about because he does a really good job by himself. So... Here we go. Here's Martin. Enjoy.
He who sees all beings in the self, and the self in all beings, no longer hides in fear. A quote from the Isha Upanishad. Uh, welcome to Bibliotheque Labyrinth and Files. Man, that's quite a name. Uh, I want to thank Sparky for having me on the podcast. My name is Martin. Of course, I am not Michael Sparkman, uh, nor am I the other Michael from Germany. And this episode is going to be a little bit different, so I want to thank Sparky for giving me the opportunity to spend a little time talking about a book that's very near and dear to my heart. And uh, I know that the previous episodes of the show have been uh, sci-fi, fantasy uh, for the most part. But uh, I want to do something a little bit different. And uh, since Sparky has this podcast, uh, I suggested, hey, can I do this book? And he said, hell yeah. And I was a little surprised because uh, I didn't think he would agree, but he did. So I said that I would. And the book that I'll be discussing on this episode is the Upanishads. Uh, I do have a particular translation in front of me uh, by Vernon Katz and Thomas Agenes. Uh They're both scholars, I believe. Katz is a professor at... Uh, Never mind. I, I can't remember what university. I think University of Minnesota. And then uh, Thomas Jeans has been uh, translating, and uh, he was an instructor of Sanskrit for many, many years, since the 80s. And uh, this is the translation that I'm using. It's a fairly recent one uh, from 2015. Uh, you can find dozens and dozens of different translations by now. That was not always the case, but uh, now you can. And uh, the reason I like this particular translation is because it's very simple and uh, very easy to read. So that's the one that I chose to discuss on this episode. So I guess the most important thing for the majority of people is, what in the world are the Upanishads? And that's probably the best place to start, really. And the reason I said this was going to be a little bit of a different episode is that this is not a fictional book. Uh, this is actually an ancient Hindu uh, manuscript uh, not always written down. It used to be oral tradition at one point, but it is an ancient Hindu manuscript. Uh, it is part of the Vedas uh, on the latter half, and uh, it's the part of the Vedas that deal mostly in philosophy, I would say. Uh, I know some people like to confuse the term religion sometimes. Uh, I don't see this book at all as religion. And the reason I began this episode with the quote that I did is because... I've been kind of going through this journey of, of self-discovery, I guess, as, as my podcasting partner, Nick Wetmore, likes to say, a journey of self-discovery. And one of the things that I've been very weary of when the topic of that journey comes up on a podcast is I try not to talk too much about some of the more mystical aspects, I guess, of the journey. And uh, one of those is actually reading a lot of sacred, religious, philosophical manuscripts, uh, a lot of uh, Buddhist writings, a lot of Hindu writings, um, also a lot of like Gnostic Christian stuff as well. There's a lot of really interesting mystical stuff that uh, is often tossed by the wayside by mainstream religious folks. Uh, and again, I'm using the word religion because I think that's mainstream kind of what people see this as. Uh, I think it's actually much more than that. I think it's a really interesting life philosophy uh, and one that I've been really getting into but a bit over the last few months, I would say since the beginning of the year. 
And that's been a very long journey. I'll talk about that journey in a little bit, but let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the Upanishads are. So as I mentioned, they are part of the Vedic writings. Uh, they came about between the years 800 to 500 BCE. So, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 years. That's pretty old. That's pretty old and they're still around. So uh, I feel like there is some knowledge to be gathered from a document that's been around for such a long time and is still in use today. Uh, in fact, in India, this is still very much a sacred text uh, that people read very religiously. Uh, and uh, pardon the double entendre there. Um, but it's it's held in very high regard. And in the West, it's also been held in high regard. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, in particular, over the last, I would say, 200 years. Uh, and really, in the 20th century, uh, became very important as well. The translation that I'm reading from is actually a, a much shorter translation than some of the ones that you can get. Uh, this book only has 11 of the Upanishads. Uh, there are... Ten that are considered core uh, texts of the Upanishads. Uh, there's a sometimes an eleventh. Uh, that eleventh is actually, I would say, my favorite of the bunch. So I like to include it. Uh, this book includes those eleven. Uh, my favorite is the uh, Shvetashvatara Upanishad. Uh, by the way, my Hindu pronunciation is completely horrendous. So my apologies if there are any uh, Hindu. Uh, or uh, Sanskrit readers uh, that are listening to this podcast. I, I was going to list all the names of the Upanishads, uh, these core ones, but then I decided against it because my translations would be uh, horrendous. So uh, this book has 11. There are 10 considered core with the one optional, the one that I just mentioned. Uh, but really, there's hundreds of them. There's over 200 of these, I don't want to say stories, because this is not a traditional quote-unquote, religious script or religious manuscript. Uh, it's almost like uh, an anthology of different manuscripts. And uh, I love anthologies. Uh, for anyone listening to this that listens to some of my other podcasts will be very aware or well of that. Uh, I love anthologies in comics, for example, in, uh, in TV. Uh, it's one of my favorite formats and one that's not, uh, not, uh, not used very often enough. Uh, even within these what I will say, 11 core Upanishads, there are, there's a lot of crossover in the types of stories and sayings that are, that are given here. And a lot of these are sayings. Uh, they are written in verse and I've never read the Sanskrit original. Uh, I don't even know where to start. I, I remember one time years ago trying to find a Romanized version of the Sanskrit just so I could read it in the original. And uh, a Romanized version would be still in Sanskrit by using our normal alphabet, our English alphabet. And uh, I can never find that. I'm sure maybe that's available now somewhere since everything's available on the Internet. This this would have been, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I would say. Uh, that was not available then. But I would love to read that at one point and see kind of how the reading it in the original language would change the way it flows because when you translate a document uh, from a different language, in particular a language as old as Sanskrit, it, it can it can be very hard, right? A, a lot of times the writer or the translator has to kind of take some liberty into the words that are chosen. And so, of course, there are people that prefer certain translations of various documents over others. You know, documents like the Bible get rewritten all the time. 
And uh, sometimes you lose some of that stuff in translation, in particular if you translate from an already translated document. And I think that's true, for example, in a lot of Christian documents that are translated from Coptic or Greek. Uh, you do tend to lose some of the original meaning of the language. And that's something that I've been really interested in lately uh, because you know, I've started rereading, for example, the Gnostic Bible. And uh, a lot of those documents were written in Greek and in Coptic. So it's interesting to see how those translations shape. But originally, the Upanishads were not written documents. They were uh, transmitted orally. Uh, and there's a couple different schools on, on how this is done in Hindu tradition. So one would be uh, in an ashram, which is basically like a, a hermit's dwelling in the forest. And uh, the other one would be like at the home of a guru, you know, within a town or a city. And regardless of that, the process is basically the same. You would have a, a master who would sit with his students. Uh, they would sit next to the student and would kind of tell these stories, uh, different, uh, different poems, verses. You know, we see this in all kinds of traditions, right? In Christianity, uh, you have like Buddhist cones, for example. Uh, this is a very popular way of transmitting knowledge and eventually it did get written down. Uh, but like I said, there's, there's over 200 of these. Uh, I've never looked for a translation that actually contained all the manuscripts. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there has one. Uh, I do not. And the thing about these is that even though there are so many, uh, a lot of the, the themes and the imagery are very similar throughout a lot of these. If you're really into like Hindu religion, for example, uh, you'll know that these are divided into themes as well based on the Vedas. So there's four different Vedas uh, and the, there's themes for each of these Upanishads that fit within each of those. And uh, I, I read the Vedas many years ago. Uh, I think that is a much more difficult document to read than something like the Upanishads. Uh, in fact, uh, I reread this entire book tonight uh, within about an hour or so uh, before I started doing the podcast. Uh, because there is a lot of really interesting things to gather from here. And, you know, unlike the Vedas and some of the other uh, Hindu documents, like the Bhagavad Gita, for example, there's not as much in terms of having to know a lot about Hindu culture uh, at this period of time. Uh, it seems like the Upanishads were kind of written in a way where the message is more universal. Uh, there are times where you can get a little lost in the language, and I think that's to be expected, right? Like there's uh, there's a couple of verses where they might reference like hunting with a bow and arrow. And of course, like who does that now, right? Very few people go hunting with a bow and arrow. Um, or, you know, like churning your own butter uh, out of milk and things like that. So some of these metaphors may not necessarily appeal directly to a large modern audience but i think if you if you spend you know a little bit of time trying to do some research as to why that is uh even something like churning butter you know you, that's something that you can easily picture and uh ultimately the the message i think is what's important of, of this collection of writings of sayings uh that's really important and it's uh it's been really influential for a lot of people really since the first translation in the Western world. Uh, so the first translation out of Sanskrit was done uh, in the 1600s by, I can't remember the, the Raj's name, but the the king that created the or commissioned 
the Taj Mahal. Uh, he was the first one to get this book translated uh, outside of Sanskrit, which is the original language that it was written in. In 1802, there was a, a French translation and a Latin translation that came out. And of course, that made it more easily accessible to the Western world because uh, having a Latin translation made it easier to translate into other languages as well. And this was heavily influential for a lot of uh, American authors and poets, for example. Some of the examples that I found would be like uh, Henry David Thoreau or Emerson or Walt Whitman. Uh, they, You can kind of see it in their writings once you understand that they were very familiar with these texts. But uh, I, I don't want to look for any quotes on what they said, but they, there's some interesting stuff that they were talking about. Uh, in particular, Thoreau had some interesting things to say about the Upanishads. Uh, I remember... Uh, reading something once where he said the amount of treasure found within these books is worth 10 times the amount of wealth in all of Massachusetts. And I, I'm, I'm butchering the quote. Uh, I, I don't take notes on anything. Uh, I don't like to write anything down when I'm doing a podcast. I like to just kind of talk out of my head. Uh, the only thing that I actually did write down for recording this episode are uh, the couple of quotes that I'll be reading uh, throughout this podcast. So very influential for those guys. And if you get their readings or their writings, for example, you'll, you'll quickly see that as well. Uh, in the 20th century, it was actually really influential for what I, I would think is one of the most important moments of world history of the 20th century. I mean, there's, there's a lot of crazy things that happen, a lot of important events, but the, I guess, creation of quantum physics and quantum mechanics in the 1920s and 30s, uh, I think is one of the most important aspects of the 20th century, not just because of the theoretical stuff. And, you know, I always talk about comics and stuff, for example, in podcasts. Uh, that's kind of more of what I've been known for when I do podcasts. But uh, my my original passions have always been uh, religion, philosophy, and quantum mechanics, and I know that's that's kind of weird, but they do go hand in hand quite a bit. And uh, and these guys saw that, you know. Uh, Einstein has been known to quote the Upanishads and the Vedas quite a bit. Uh, of course, is that famous quote from the Bhagavad Gita? Uh, what is it? I have I have become death, destroyer of worlds. Uh, of course, relating to the creation of the atom bomb. But some of these physicists were really into this book that we're talking about tonight, the Upanishads, and they found great insight into it. Uh, there's even a quote from Niels Bohr. Uh, he says, I go to the Upanishads to ask questions. And that's really interesting, right? Having somebody, these these guys that are just deeply entrenched in science and nature and mathematics look to a text like this that's that's very heavily and deeply based on philosophy to find answers to help them figure out some of the theories. And uh, maybe at some point... On some podcast, I'll, I'll talk about some of that stuff because it's really fascinating. But uh, you can easily find quotes from like David Bohm, Niels Bohr, like I mentioned, uh, Schrodinger, Oppenheimer, uh, relating to their fascination and, and study of Hindu scripture, uh, in particular the Upanishads. And you know, it's really interesting if you dive into some of that stuff, how very similar some of the imagery used in quantum physics, for example, is to some of the stuff that's talked about in in various uh, Vedantic 
writings, uh, including the Upanishads. So that's uh, that's really interesting to see as well. Uh, in fact, uh, David Bohm. I, I was just watching a video uh, from, about David Bohm. He's I think he's dead now. He's been dead uh, a few years, but uh, really fascinating guy. Uh, after he retired from science, he kind of went and studied with a Hindu guru. And uh, so even even after all decades later, he he's still very fascinated with the stuff. So uh, really cool. I do urge you to go and look some of this stuff up. Uh, you know, there's been books written about this kind of thing, like the Tao of Physics, uh, which I read probably over two decades ago. Uh, really influential at one point. Uh, but you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was really weary of when Sparky agreed to let me do this and when I... Uh, volunteered myself to do it was, you know, sometimes you can get into uh, what I called on the Nerd Legion podcast, uh, hippy dippy bull. And, uh, you know, that line can be a little fine to walk sometimes when you deal with these kind of texts that deal very deeply with religious and philosophical elements of a particular society. Uh, and in particular, when those elements really appeal to you uh, in a modern context. And, you know, I can talk about certain things that I feel like, hey, nobody wants to hear this. And and that's the reason that I picked the quote that I picked at the beginning. He who sees all things in the self and the self in all beings no longer hides in fear. Because that's one thing that I've come to realize uh, over the last couple of days. And it kind of hit me tonight before I started recording this after I reread this book once again. Uh, is that I probably don't need to be afraid of saying things like that. And And if you feel like sometimes you can't speak up, then don't have that fear. There's nothing to fear because some of the stuff doesn't matter, right? It's immaterial. It doesn't matter. So that's why I decided to, to do this episode. And uh, I hope I can explain this well enough where it'll be cohesive and uh, people might be interested in actually reading this. Uh, there's uh, a couple central elements of the Upanishads which uh, are key to what is discussed in this book. And and this is where we get into kind of the, the fine line between religion and philosophy. But I do honestly believe that a lot of the imagery this this is a philosophy book. To me it's not a religious book. It is a philosophy book. But some of the imagery is kind of veiled in that religious context, understandably, because of the culture that it was created in. But what's really interesting about it is that the message actually goes a little beyond that. And if you understand what the message is of this book you begin to realize that's the whole point. You veil these things in imagery to kind of hide them from just people that don't really want to put the time in to understand what some of these things are. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit how that deals with the topics of this book in a second. But what's really interesting is that that is true also even of the name of these writings themselves. So Upanishads, uh, I'm a language nut, by the way, so I had to look up what it meant. And uh, it's really interesting. So the it, it's comprised of three different words, uh, three Sanskrit words. So upa means near, ni means down, and shad means to sit. Uh, so basically, it's sitting down near your guru, which, of course, is the way that these, this book was translated. So, of course, it makes sense that that would be the name of it, right? A text that you receive from sitting next to someone that has achieved some kind of extra mystical knowledge, I guess. But what's interesting is once you get to the themes of the book, that same etymological breakdown of Upa, Ni, and Shad dives deeply into the context of 
what is written in the book itself. Because not only are you sitting down next to your guru to get the message of the Upanishads, but ultimately what this writings talk about is the, here we go with the hippy-dippy stuff, are you ready? The unification of all things. So of course by sitting near Brahman, the, the ultimate consciousness, you become aware of that consciousness. So those are really the three main themes of, of this these writings. So number one is awakening the self, and that's a capital S self. Uh, I'll explain that in a second. You have Brahman, I'll also explain that. And you have non-duality, which kind of combines the two into one, which quite interestingly is exactly what non-duality is, right? So in uh, in, in Hindu, uh, Advaita would be the term, that means not two. And so ultimately the message of this is the self and Brahman are not two separate things. They're one thing. And of course, this is where we get, you know, again, the hippy-dippy stuff that came around in the you know, 60s and 70s, where everyone's like, oh, everyone love each other. We're all connected. We're all one. And of course, now when everybody talks about being one, immediately you think of that kind of thing, right? A hippie commune, people smoking weed, uh, you know, dancing around naked, high as hell. But interestingly, that's not ever what it meant until we in Western society, at least, became accustomed to seeing that imagery on TV, right? Because it's kind of an idealized, romanticized, ideal view of what these writings are trying to say. So I'll discuss the three different themes. So number one is awakening the self. So there's uh, some really interesting cosmology in Hinduism about how the world is laid out and how the body itself is laid out. And that has to do, you know, with the elements like um, the breath of life and air and wind and water and fire. And you see a lot of this imagery as you read the Upanishads. There's some really beautiful verses relating to that kind of thing. In fact, I'll, I'll discuss one in a second when I talk about Brahman. And really, ultimately, what you want to do is really learn who you are. And for some people listening, this may kind of seem like a self-help kind of thing. Again, that's this romanticized, idealized version of what the texts say, because 3,000 years ago, there were no hippies. There was no self-help. This is what was, and this is what still is. Sometimes you need to go beyond the face value of what you're looking at and what you're reading and try to find the meaning within. And again, that's exactly what you're trying to do when you are studying the Upanishads. And if that's not what you want, that's fine. You should still read this because there's some really beautiful language, some really beautiful metaphors about people and interactions with each other. So awakening the self is one of the central themes. Uh, and again, I, I talked a little bit broadly about this cosmology in, in Hinduism, but it also translates to other philosophies and religions that have been influenced by Hinduism and these texts. So for example, Jainism and Buddhism, uh, Christianity, early Christianity to uh, a large extent. Uh, not so much what we see nowadays. But uh, if you go back and do some history on the early church, there's a lot of similarities with finding the, awakening the inner self and finding the God within and uh, the union of all things. Okay. Those are the three themes in here. And that was also a central theme in early Christian thought as well. So I recommend you go read, uh, for example, Pseudo-Dionysus, 
he's very much steeped into that. He was a Christian mystic. Uh, of course, the, the Gnostic writings uh, as well. Really interesting stuff. So awakening the self is important. Why? Why is that important? Because when you awaken the self, you realize who you really are. And you realize that a lot of the things that you embroil yourself with on a day-to-day basis don't really matter. Okay, And this is important nowadays. I know... There's a lot of talk about like social media hurting people, right? Because people are addicted to being on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Everyone's after the uh, the likes and the retweets and wherever else. And none of that matters if you find out who you truly are, right? If you find meaning within yourself and not try to find that meaning within others. I think that's a message that a lot of people can relate to. I know I've had friends that I've lost because they did not understand how to find meaning within themselves and found meaning in the relationship that they had with me. And that worked great for a long time. But at some point you realize this is not the way that things should be, right? I'm extremely happy with myself. I feel like I'm very much in touch with who I am and who I want to be. Of course, I'm, I don't think I'm anywhere near where I want to be, but I, I do feel like I have a sense of direction. And sometimes people don't have that, right? People sometimes get lost and find meaning only in other things, maybe because they're too scared to find the meaning within themselves, because they don't understand who they are or what they want to be. So awakening the self, that's that's one central theme of this, right? And that's kind of step one. You need to know who you are in order to, step two, realize Brahman or Brahman. I'm not sure how, the exact pronunciation of the word. And Brahman is, in essence, God, Right? But again, this is not strictly a religious text, and a lot of times we get bogged down a little bit by language and imagery. So, of course, in the West, you think God, you think this old man up in the sky with the long hair and the beautiful beard and the the robes, and he's just up in the clouds watching you with his angels all around. Okay, Usually, that's when people say God, that's what you think of. But here, that's not what God is. God is kind of more of a... An infinite consciousness that's just everywhere, right? There is no this God and that God and the other God. There is just Brahman. And of course, if you're familiar a little bit with Hindu mythology, you'll be like, well, Martin, there's hundreds, there's thousands of Hindu gods. How can you say that the Hindus just have Brahman? And that's true, but that's because you're kind of set in your kind of Western mentality, right? Uh, it is true that there's hundreds of thousands of gods within Hindu philosophy and religion, but ultimately, all those gods are just different aspects of Brahman, which is the one ultimate god. And the other interesting thing about Brahman is that unlike our Western idea of what god might be, god is not a he, even though sometimes when you read some of these texts, he might be referenced as he. Uh, remember, this is kind of a, a, a paternalistic society, so of course the male imagery is strong. But it's not a he, it's not a she, it's not an it, it's it's a nothing. And it's an everything. And that might be a little tough to comprehend, but that's kind of some of the things that you learn as you read the Upanishads. In fact, I want to read a quote that I think kind of encompasses this quite a bit, and it does it really well. And this is two sages speaking to students and kind of trying to figure out who they are. But it's also not just a reference to who they are, but a reference to who they really are and their connection to Brahman. It says, you are a woman, you are a man, 
You are the youth and the maiden, too. You are the old man hobbling along with a staff. Once born, you are the face turned in every direction. You are the dark blue butterfly. You are the green parrot with red eyes. You are the thundercloud, pregnant with lightning. You are the seasons. You are the seas. You are without beginning, present everywhere. You, from whom all worlds are born. That's really beautiful. I'm, uh, I'm tearing up a little bit. It's beautiful and so different from what we're used to, right? Think about if everyone you knew read this verse. If everyone on Twitter trolling other people read this verse and spent some time trying to understand what it is, what it means, why the opposing imagery, and why that imagery is not opposing, why it's all the same image. You think those people would get on Twitter and call each other names and, and bash each other and swat people who they don't like or get on YouTube or whatever and need nasty comments or, uh, you know, grab women by the P word. If you really understand what the text is trying to tell you, you realize, back to the hippy dippy word, that everything is one. So why would you bother with any of that stuff? Why would you bother discussing politics and talking bad about people and being nasty to your neighbor? You wouldn't do any of those things. And this is where the third and, and most important concept of the Upanishads comes in, and that is non-duality, right? So I, I mentioned Advaita earlier. There's various different schools of Advaita, you know, Advaita Vedanta, you have Neo Advaita, you have a few different ones. But ultimately, it puts those first two concepts that had to be introduced into one. Because when you learn to awaken the self and learn of the nature of Brahman, you learn that it's all the same, See, in the West, we're used to God being this being up in the clouds that watches you and maybe takes care of you, maybe sometimes uh, <laughs> throws a lightning bolt at you or whatever. But that's not the case here, right? Because Brahman is not up in the clouds. Brahman is everywhere. As part of this uh, you know, self-discovery thing that I've been doing, one of the techniques that I've picked up recently is, uh, is really simple and, and seemingly very stupid. I'll be frank. It seems very dumb. And that practice is just to simply look at my hand. And if you do this long enough and you understand some of these things, you, you realize some really weird things, right? In relation to some of these concepts that I've been talking about on this episode. And it really is that simple. All, all I do is just stare at my hand for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. And once you start understanding some of these concepts, you realize, well, you know, here's my hand. My hand has fingers. And I'm one finger, and Michael Sparkman is another finger, and you listening is another finger. But they're all part of the hand. And that's the same idea of Brahman. There is no Brahman in the clouds. Brahman is inside me, and inside you, and in my keyboard. Because it's a thing. It's a, a, a thing that exists. And in this water that I'm drinking. And it's, it's, it's powerful and beautiful, and it seems really dumb. But try, try it. Try it a couple times. And so ultimately what this book is trying to do is to get you to realize all those things. Realize who you really are. To find happiness in the present moment. To learn that that happiness comes from the universe. If that's a better word than God. God's kind of a dirty word sometimes. We'll just say the universe. And that all there is is that. And that you can find a way to find that. I want to read uh, another quote from that same Upanishad. Shvetashvatara Upanishad on this exact concept. I mentioned the, the butter a little bit earlier. Uh, this is where that comes in. As oil and sesame seeds, as butter and milk, 
as water in rivers, as fire in wood, as the self is found within oneself. When one discovers it, there's truthfulness. That's also really beautiful. You look at some of these metaphors and you're like, well, what does that have to do with anything, right? But it's the, the process of extracting something else out of just a core ingredient, right? So you have your sesame seeds and you press them and you get sesame oil. You have your milk and you churn it and you get butter, right? You could have a glass of water, but if you have a lot of water, you have a river. And if you have wood, you can make fire. In the same way, if you follow some of these teachings... You can find your true self within yourself. Because Brahman isn't everything. And if you think this is just, uh, you know, some Eastern philosophy thing that, uh, uh, Martin, you've gone crazy. You're just into this Eastern stuff right now. You can take a look at the, the Bible. You can, you can find some of these in the New Testament. This is not a Hindu thing or a Buddhist thing or a Zen thing, a Taoist thing. It's a, it's a really introspective thing. And there's not, a lot of introspection nowadays. It's just a lot of superficiality. You know, I've, I've learned a lot from this book, and not just this book, many others. I hope I've been able to kind of explain this in the simplest terms that I can. Uh, you know, Advaita, non-duality, is, is not an easy thing to, to talk about. You know, I've been going on for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes already, and I haven't even touched the base of it. But I think it is important to find a different perspective. And that's why I wanted to to talk about this. Uh, not so much because I think everyone should read this because I find meaning in it. Uh, that's not it at all. I think it's important to find different perspectives and things. You know, we, we do this in all kinds of media, right? I mean, I, I love comics. I don't read, you know, just Batman comics, right? That's my favorite character. I don't read just Batman character or Batman comics. I don't read just Moon Knight comics. That's my second favorite. When I watch movies, I don't watch just science fiction movies. That's my favorite genre. Or horror, my second favorite genre. I don't watch just movies with the same actor or by the same director or the same writer. We don't do any of those things, right? We try to get the most varied experience that we can so we don't get bored. And why can't we do that in things that we read? Of course we do, right? But why not in ideas that we can believe? I think that's really important. Getting a different perspective than whatever you've been raised with or whatever, you know? My dad's a, my dad was a preacher. I remember when I was in high school, in my senior year in high school, uh, is when when this whole thing began for me. My dad was a preacher. I grew up in church. We were all very dedicated, right? My mom was, she would do the flowers and all kinds of stuff, flower arrangements for the church. You know, my dad would do his preaching thing. He'd go on visits, see people at the hospital, my mom taught Sunday school. I was choir director for several years. I mean, we, were, we were really involved. But even through all that, I felt there was something missing for me. And so my senior year came up, and there was a, a religious studies class that was being offered. And uh, and it was, you know, a few different things. They did, uh, it was Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, uh, some Christianity. Uh, and I can't remember, I think there was one other, and I can't remember. Uh, I, I think with the Judaism a little bit, uh, not very much, and uh, a couple others. And it was a really interesting class. I learned a lot. And uh, the, the teacher that I had was amazing. Amazing. But I remember, you know, my dad was not very happy with it. And he asked me to speak with another preacher. And, of course, he wasn't very happy with it. And they, they warned me how I would be taken down uh, this path uh, that God did not want me to take. And, you know, they were probably right because I ended up 
not going to church anymore uh, after taking this class. And it wasn't because I wasn't religious any longer, that I didn't believe anything any longer, but that I felt like there was so much more to learn. And this book means a lot to me for that reason. It gave me an entirely different perspective and one that really leaves me in awe and wonder every day. So I think I'm going to wrap this up here. I've been, uh, you know, I'm like 50 minutes in and when I, when I cut out all the silence, it's going to be probably 20 minutes less than that. Um, I've been kind of, uh, I, I've been tearing up since I read that quote. So I do want to leave this with, uh, with one last quote that I think kind of encompasses what this whole thing is. And that has one of the, uh, the key sacred mantras, I guess you could say. Uh, in this kind of philosophical thinking and kind of encompasses everything that I've talked about over the last however long this podcast was. This comes from the uh, Chadogya Upanishad. It's a, a really beautiful story. Um, and, and the central character is uh, Shvetaketu. He's uh, kind of the, the quintessential seeker of, of knowledge and truth in the Upanishads. Now he's he's told is coming from this long line of gurus and seekers and uh, whatever and uh, this Upanishad and a couple other ones the story's told through a few different ones uh, as he goes from somebody that's completely lost to somebody that is able to achieve understanding of of the world uh, as the rivers flowing east and west merge in the sea and become one with it forgetting there were separate rivers so do all creatures lose their separateness they merge at last into pure being. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything, he is inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetakatu. Tat Tavamasi. You are that. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope I didn't bore you. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Geekvine. And uh, thanks again to Michael for letting me uh, do this show. Yeah.